Today's Bible reading is from Acts 5, starting at verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to, to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and saviour that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, 
you will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that's an amazing passage of scripture, isn't it? And if you don't already have the Bible open in some form in front of you, I invite you to do that. It will help you as we go along. The passage follows straight on after the Ananias and Sapphira passage that we had from Acts chapter 5 last week. But things are a little different this week. So let's pray together that God would work amongst us even in this different format. Whether you're on your own, just on a device, or whether you're in a group of people, we can pray together now. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, please, by your word, continue to encourage your church, no matter what the circumstance. We pray for today that you would lift our hearts to see your face. And Father, may we be encouraged. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one evening this week, I was watching uh, the news on the ABC, and one reporter had a theological take on our present circumstances. He mentioned the devastation of the bushfires earlier in the year and then the devastation from the coronavirus. And he said, 2020 will be remembered as the year God forgot. COVID-19 has certainly grabbed our attention. It's a rapidly spreading disease that seems to be highly contagious with a death toll at the time of recording this of about 8,000. One of the more concerning aspects of the rising toll is that although experts have been measuring deaths for up to about 55 days now, the number of deaths has doubled in just the last nine days. And so things are changing rapidly in our community. We've had government directives, we're, we're restricting travel, we're limiting the size of public gatherings, any gatherings. We're implementing a policy of social distancing, personal hygiene and highlighting the need for people who are unwell to stay home altogether. And we're introducing more testing of the coronavirus itself. The Prime Minister has told us to stop hoarding and for each of us to take responsibility. And there may be stricter measures around the corner and it may be a long time before things return to normal. Of course, this is a big challenge for us as a church and as a network of churches and for churches around the world. The, world, the word church literally means gathering. And so does a virtual gathering, does it count as church? Many of us will be thinking about that question over coming days. How do we care for each other, particularly those who face isolation for a range of reasons? How do we care not only for our own people, but also for people in the wider community? How do we continue to grow as disciples of Christ? And what does it look like for us to do evangelism in this context? There are many questions. And yet it's one thing to have questions about how we do church, and another thing altogether to worry that somehow church won't be able to be church. That somehow this online interaction is not real. Well, I am quite confident that 2020 is not the year God has forgotten. Quite the contrary, it may be the very year that many people wake up to God. 
Rather than being worried, let's be prayerful. And by God's grace, I believe that today's passage from Acts chapter 5 speaks fairly directly into this present circumstance. In today's passage, we have three pictures and then an epilogue. And it will be the epilogue that will bring things together. And, you know, as a preacher, I'm always looking for sermons that have got three Ps. I don't find them often, but today is a three P sermon. There are three pictures, a picture of power, a picture of protectiveness, and a picture of perspective. And then at the end, the epilogue. So first of all, a picture of power. And Luke starts this passage saying in verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. God's power is on display. And it's obviously quite a dramatic time in the life of the church. All the believers were meeting together in Solomon's colonnade. That's a part of the temple courtyard. This is an ancient city with a population of only about, well, it's hard to know, but probably best estimates around 100,000 people. And so it wouldn't have had many large meeting spaces. But the temple courtyards were huge. And so 5,000 people or more could, could meet there. That would be a banned gathering in today's climate. They're making a real impact in the city. And yet the wider population of the city of Jerusalem isn't really sure what to make of this. They're, this is a phenomenon they can't really grapple with. Verse 13 says, No one else dared join the believers, even though they were highly regarded by the people. wonder why. I wonder if it was perhaps what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira that would have, the news would have passed around, that they were instantly judged for their deceit and that they fell down dead. And perhaps that's made people cautious. Nevertheless, the number of people believing in the gospel is increasing and the word is traveling about the apostles' ability to heal. And so people are bringing sick people out into the streets on their beds and on their mats. Imagine, you know, going down the main street of Mount Barker and seeing beds and mats lining the footpaths, especially on the sunny side of the street, of course. Sick people on these mats, all waiting for the apostles to walk by, hoping that even, even the shadow might fall on them. And these are crowds from towns all around Jerusalem, as well as from the city itself. And so imagine all the sick people from Lobethal and Woodside and Harndorf and Nairn all, all joining together to try and catch a glimpse of these apostles. And also there are people tormented by impure spirits. So it's quite possibly a fairly rowdy time down in uh, downtown Jerusalem. The phrase I find amazing is the end of verse 16. All of them were healed. This is a picture of the power of God at work, healing everyone. Wouldn't you like that today? And it's not just COVID-19. Cancer hasn't gone anywhere. It's, we still need to be healed of that. Heart disease, lung disease, there's a disease for every part of the body. And in a time of pandemic, the one thing we're not talking about is healing. We're talking about quarantining, we're talking about isolating, we're talking about hopefully eventually uh, vaccinating, but not healing. And brothers and sisters, we've got to remember that this is where God is different 
He has power over human illness. He's not surprised by this. He's not scrambling to come up with the vaccine or desperately hoping we will. Nor has he forgotten about 2020. Acts 5. This passage tells us that God has power over sickness. That there are times when this power is unleashed. And when it is, there's no sickness that can stand against it. Do you believe that? So the first picture is a picture of power. Secondly, a picture of protectiveness. This story is not all happy healings. The religious authorities are filled with jealousy. They can't stand seeing what's going on. This movement is just getting bigger and bigger and things are at stake, important things. And so they arrest the apostles and they put them in jail. It's not that hard to have jealousy over spiritual matters. Maybe you see someone else's Bible study group humming better than yours. You know, maybe it's more pastorally open or they're praying deeper prayers. Or someone else's church is growing faster than ours. Or people who do church differently, perhaps more socially concerned, perhaps more youth-oriented. You know, perhaps those other churches are seeming to make more of an impact. We can get jealous. And if we had power to be able to modify them or tone them down or shut them down, what would we do? Well, the Lord was against the jealous ones. He sends an angel in the night who opens the door of the jail and brings out the apostles. And this is the first of three jail breaks in the book of Acts. It's a bit of a metaphor for the whole of Christian ministry, that this ministry of Jesus is unstoppable, certainly not stoppable by a bunch of jail bars. And that's made, this is all made very clear by the fact that the angel doesn't mess around. He simply instructs the apostles to go and get back to work. In particular, go back to the temple, get back to telling people all about this new life. The temple was always set up to be the place you would come to meet God. But now because of Jesus, you meet God in the message about Jesus. You meet God in the body of Christ Jesus. So get back together and, and get back to telling about Jesus, is what the angel tells the apostles. Maybe there's a message for us in that on this first day of online church. Don't let this constraint take your eye off the gospel. We still need to tell people the message of this new life. Of course, it all becomes very humiliating for the religious leaders. They find the jail empty. And then they're at a loss and they're wondering what this might lead to. There's a sense of anxiety and worry about the implications of this. But then there's news, verse 25. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And so what was jealousy and then became worry or anxiety, now becomes fear. They gently bring the apostles back to the Sanhedrin because of fear that the people might stone them. Notice how significant these emotions are in the way Luke tells the story. Human emotions, they're, they're normal responses. We empathize with the situation very easily when these emotions are flagged for us in the text. 
But the emotions of the leaders here in this text are negative emotions. They help paint this picture of protectiveness. They're trying to maintain the world as they know it. And they're seeing things change and they're trying to protect themselves, protect the status quo, protect their own power and influence. We're seeing a lot of things change in our lives at the moment. Are we adopting a posture of protectiveness? Well, things get worse for the apostles. Actually, things get worse for the leaders. They pull the apostles in before the high priest. Verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the others reply, we have instructions from God. And this is the God of your ancestors we're talking about. You're the ones who are against God here is the message that Peter is giving. You killed Jesus on the cross, but God raised him, reversing your work, raised him from the dead. More than that, God exalted him to his right hand. He is the prince or the, the royal heir. Jesus is the savior, the promised Messiah, who was bringing Israel to repentance and was bringing forgiveness for sins. Read between the lines, Israel's leaders, you need your sins forgiven too. And we, says Peter, we have the Holy Spirit testifying to the truth of what we're saying. What you're seeing through all these healings and this growth of the church is the testimony of what we're saying is true. Now, of course, this brings a furious response from the Sanhedrin. Their protectiveness of their reputations and of the status quo, it's reached boiling point. They want these men dead. So picture two is a picture of protectiveness. Picture three is a picture of perspective. There's a wise old teacher called Gamaliel. We find out later that this was the Apostle Paul's instructor before he came to Christ. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, which means that he was pietistic. His reputation was important. He believed in the power of God to raise the dead, although not the resurrection of Christ. And he was well respected in Israel and yet not a follower of Christ. Gamaliel brings a certain perspective to the situation. What do you make of his perspective? What do you make of his view of God and his view of history? He stands up in the Sanhedrin and gives an order. He's from the opening of the opposing party from that of the high priest who's a Sadducee, but he obviously still speaks with authority in the place. He orders the, the, the apostles to be put outside for a little while, while they confer. And he warns his colleagues to consider carefully what they're about to do, what they intend to do with the apostles. The Sanhedrin is baying for blood, but Gamaliel is arguing for calm. And he tells two stories of two separate rebel leaders. There were probably many other examples that he could have drawn from, but Gamaliel mentions Theudas and Judas the Galilean, both of whom raise a, a band of supporters and both of whom are killed 
and then those supporters are dis dispersed and their rebellion comes to nothing. His conclusion is, let the apostles go. Verse 38, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. It's interesting how sometimes the Bible quotes God's enemies saying something where there's an element of truth that in the end plays a role in advancing the kingdom. It happens in John's gospel as well. The high priest says this about Jesus. He says it to the Sanhedrin. This is John chapter 11, verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It wasn't intended as a proclamation of the gospel, but that's what it ended up being. What about Gamaliel's statement that if what is happening is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop it. Well, it sort of sounds true, doesn't it? It, it? It's half true, I think. Ultimately, God's purposes cannot be stopped. How can puny humans thwart the plans of God, especially if God is able to work all things together towards his purposes? And Peter has already indicated that those in the Sanhedrin ordered, ordering them to stop preaching Jesus, they're indeed fighting against God, to use Gamaliel's words. And as we read this in the 21st century, we think, well, you weren't, able, you weren't able to stop it, were you, Sanhedrin? However, Gamaliel's comment is also half untrue, I think. For example, we believe that there's only one true religion. It's a controversial statement, but we believe that Christ is the only way to know God. That's the message of the previous chapter in Acts. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But even though that may be true, there are lots of other religions around, very old religions that seem to be not dispersing, not disappearing. Maybe they're even growing. Ultimately, if these religions are of human origin, you know, we believe they will fail. But for practical purposes, day by day, for the Sanhedrin's purposes, this statement is just not true. False religions persist all the time. Everywhere. Many human activities prevail for centuries and millennia. And the things of God are often stopped. His people are often silenced. They're even put to death. Each of the apostles would ultimately give their own lives for their witness, with the possible exception of John. Gamaliel seems to me to be a bit fatalistic, a bit simplistic in his assessment. However, he is a calming influence on the Sanhedrin and he persuades them. Perhaps he makes them feel like taking this action would be a, a faithful course of action. Perhaps he's actually a shrewd politician. He's effectively saying, you know, use your common sense. We really don't want to be in the center of all this. It's, it's, I find it hard, actually, to work out what Gamaliel stands for. And that's so often the way 
with the different voices that we hear in the community. You hear the positive voices, you hear the negative voices, and then you hear the calming, moderate, moderating voices, and, and perhaps you think, well, this must be the right voice because it's the, the moderating voice. There's nothing wrong with being sensible and practical, nothing wrong with trying to look at things from a different perspective. But we have more than that as Christians. We have a particular message based on a particular person. And that is always our perspective. That always shapes our views on things. And that is the thing that makes that, that gives us a solid grounding. It's not being the sort of middle ground or the reasonable perspective. That actually gives us the unshakable perspective. We sometimes can't formulate a knockdown argument for every verbal assault. But that's because we follow a saviour, not a system. We follow a person, not a set of perspectives. We believe in a message given by God. And God is not in a box. So, epilogue. Powerlessness in the face of power. But who's, where's the power? We've seen three pictures. Power, the growth of the church and the healing of all the sick. Protectiveness, the actions and emotions of these authorities around maintaining the status quo and perspective, helpful but limited if not grounded in the truth of the gospel. So what happens next? Is what looks to the world like powerlessness. But there's something very surprising about the emotions in this little epilogue. The apostles are flogged and ordered not to speak again in the name of Jesus, and then they're released. Surely they are humiliated. Surely they've learned their lesson. After all, they would each likely have carried home with them 39 sets of stripes on their body. This was not a symbolic message. It was meant to be a serious deterrent. Don't do this again. But, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The flogging has not had the intended effect. Not only are these apostles back to their daily preaching schedule, they're actually rejoicing. What does it mean for them to be rejoicing in their suffering? They're not fatalistic. They're not masochistic. They are now participating disciples following the suffering servant. They're following in Jesus' footsteps and they see this, the do, do it, suffering as Jesus suffered, as being nothing short of the highest honour. What do you think of suffering? You think of it as an honour to suffer in the footsteps of Christ. Isn't it interesting to watch the emotions in this passage? Mostly we don't hear of the emotions of the apostles until right here at the end. The passage is dominated by the emotion of the elders. They're jealous and then they're worried about what's going to happen and then they're fearful of the crowd and then they're furious of the apostles. But the apostles, what do we see from them? They're faithful. 
They speak the truth. They obey the command of the angel, which was just a reiteration of the command of Christ. And when we see their emotion, it's joy in suffering. Well, to finish, what about our current context? What does all this have to say? In light of this pandemic, can our expectation be that of verse 16, that all of them will be healed? God certainly has the power to do it. And we should certainly pray. Pray for the needy and the vulnerable, for the over 70s and particularly the over 80s. Pray for healings. Pray that people don't get sick in the first place. But remember, even in Acts, where the healings are continual and extraordinary, they serve as signs. They always point to Christ and to the message that he is saviour and that he provides forgiveness of sins. We don't know what God's purposes are for this coronavirus. It's certainly shining a light on what's important in life and what's not important. And it's shining a light on the vulnerability of human life. Will we, as Christians, be struck down? Not struck down by the virus. Will we be struck down by protectiveness? Will our emotions be characterized by jealousy or worry or fear or even fury? that things aren't working out the way they should? Or will we suffer gladly, knowing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Remember what the apostles did after their flogging. I'm sure there were more healings after their flogging, but their priority was, day after day, never to stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That was their priority, not because God didn't have the power to heal and so they had to do second best. No, no, no. But because ultimately the message of Christ is more important. If there's one thing we should take from Gamaliel's words, though, it's to look forward to the ultimate future. Ultimately, God's purposes will prevail. Nothing will stop the kingdom of God. Coronavirus will pass and it will have its collateral. But we are not afraid because the word of the Lord and the promises of the Lord stand forever. Let me lead us in prayer again, wherever you are. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel that you sent Jesus to be the saviour and the prince, the, the royal heir. And our Lord God, we thank you that this is a solution that we need in this world. Our Father, we thank you that you have power over all things, power over the, over the coronavirus and over all illnesses. And we do pray for the needy, for the vulnerable, both in our own immediate context and also in the wider context. But we pray that where you heal, you would also point to Christ and that you would make that our agenda to point to Christ through whatever happens.
to go back to proclaiming him day after day. Our Lord God, help us not to be caught up in these these negative emotions, these protective emotions of jealousy, of worry, of fear, and of fury. But help us to rejoice in suffering if we must suffer, and to rejoice in Christ and in all that Christ is for the world. Please give us boldness, and we pray that you would empower our witness, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.